Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hey, Monica. Hey, Sammy. We are so excited today to talk about a new series that we're starting, which is our series on the SOAP note. So I think a lot of us in healthcare know what a SOAP note is. We've been using it for a long time. For those of you that aren't familiar with this paradigm, it stands for Subjective Objective Assessment and Plan. And there's categories within the SOAP note where we're taught a certain way how to do things, taught how to ask questions in a certain way during our subjective, or taught to measure things a certain way in the objective without necessarily questioning if that's the best way to do it to get the results that we want with our patients. So we'd like to go into each category separately as part of a larger series and talk about what we could do differently in our subjective, objective assessment and plan to improve our rapport with our patients, to improve our efficiency and accuracy in getting to the root of a problem, and then also to help include our patients as active participants in their care versus just having them be on the sidelines. I'm excited about this series because we're going to deliver short episodes focused on the best tips. And there's a lot we want to unpack in the subjective. So Sammy, how about we dive right in and start talking about building rapport? Because the first thing we want to do whenever we meet a patient is feel connected to them so that they want to be part of the process so that we're building our therapeutic alliance. Before we do anything else, before we collect our data, before we ever do an exam, we need to establish trust. Absolutely. So how do we start to establish trust, right? Well, the first thing is listening without interrupting. And this is so tough because they start to give you information and right away I'm thinking, I want to know more about that. This is the question I could ask. We need to listen and not say anything. And the truth is, people will usually be done talking in two to three minutes. So if you have an hour, 45 minutes, even 30 minutes with a person, taking 10% of that and letting them share their story is going to go a long way towards them feeling comfortable with you, towards them feeling heard, And then it gives you the ability to really go back in and only ask the questions that answer whatever they didn't tell you. In my experience, people will usually give you a lot of good information in that narrative. So often as they're talking, I'm kind of jumping around my note, putting in maybe mechanism of injury and putting in the intensity that they describe of pain or the quality of pain and a little bit about the history And yes, we have to dig back in, but we get so much good information. 100%. I think this is such a great tool for rapport building, but also for efficiency, like you say. If they're going to give you the information already, just let them give it to you. Don't interrupt. Just let them say their thing. And I think that also prevents people from having that feeling that I think a lot of us have had when we go to the doctor and we have a list of things that we want to ask about or have addressed And then oftentimes there's an interruption or there's a question and then you get home and you go, oh, no, I forgot to ask about blah. Mm. And I think that 
allowing the patient just the time to go through their list, to go through their story, to tell you why they're there is going to help so much to allow them to feel like they got what they needed out of the session with you. Yeah. And it's good practice as a person to not interrupt anyone. (laughs) So (laughs) just as a Uh, human being, (laughs) just be a good human being with your patient. Okay. So the next one that I really thought about for this series is to practice acceptance, whether they're stressed, anxious, whatever they're telling you cause their pain, accept that as their experience. And that doesn't mean you agree with it. So maybe they said, I think my pain was caused by my core being super weak and that's why I always have pain. And maybe that's not how you believe pain to come about. Well, if you accept what they say as their truth, it eliminates your resistance as a provider and their resistance. And what I mean by resistance is your desire to change them and to start correcting them goes way down when you just accept that that's what they believe. And you can still make a note of it and say, okay, I'm going to come back to that belief in the future and see if we can try to change it. Maybe this belief, whatever it is, isn't helpful to their recovery. Put a pin in that. That doesn't disappear when you accept it. But now you're not trying to immediately correct them, educate in air quotes, them about what's right. And that's going to, in turn, reduce their resistance to change. Because when they feel accepted and heard, just like any person, we're open to change. We're open to dialogue about that belief, that experience. When we're on the defensive, now it becomes really hard. So accept what they say. And know that you can still disagree with it, but that you know that is their experience. I totally agree. Just going off of that point, number one tip for the subjective, at least for me, is the subjective is not the time to correct things. It is not the time to educate your patient. It is not the time to change something about what they told you. The subjective is purely for understanding your patient. Full stop. So I think that if we can approach it from that perspective, we get so much more information. I know for me personally, I've been so tempted to correct things because it feels like it might be more efficient, right? So if this patient's telling me that they're peeing every 30 minutes because they were told that it was bad to hold in their urine if they felt an urge, I'm so desperately wanting to correct that belief. But what if the next thing that they say tells me even more information? And if I just go into correction, I am skipping all of that other information that I could have gotten that would have been more efficient for me to get and get to the root of their problem. So I think it's huge to just listen, understand where they're coming from. And it doesn't mean you can't address it later. Just save that for a little later when it's more natural. And then from a rapport building perspective, you're not sitting there and correcting them, which is just... Nobody likes that. (laughs) That's just not not a fun thing to have somebody do to you in a session is, well, actually, you should be doing it like this. Right. And to your point of efficiency, when you hear their whole story, you can give them better education that is really tailored to them. The pitfall I've seen in myself and in mentoring residents 
is that when you start giving education very early in the subjective, you're trying to explain things very vaguely. Like, oh, the reason that people might have pain with sex is blank, 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 blank. And it's these big categories is like, oh, well, it could be a history of abuse or trauma. You don't even know if they have trauma yet. Yeah, you haven't asked them. (laughs) You know, or pain can happen because of a result of all these factors. Well, what are those factors? It's so much more efficient to have all the information about what they believe and then to say to them, Sammy, from what I'm hearing, your urgency might be related to your constipation. And here's how those two are linked. And which one do you want to start addressing? Rather than sprinkling in your urgency tips and tricks earlier and then later realizing, oh my God, they also have dyspareunia and they also have constipation. And so maybe that wasn't the low-hanging fruit. And now you've given them five different tips. They've probably forgotten what you told them in the subjective, to be honest, because so much else happens after that point. It's way more efficient to hear them out. Totally agree with that, Monica. I think we need to keep things specific to our patients and not as general. Another tip that I I think is really important for us to be mindful of as practitioners is our responses to our patients and what they say. We as humans often have an emotional reaction to something that people say to us. We have our own opinions about what they're saying to us, but I think we really need to be careful about what we respond to and how we respond. So what, what I mean by that is If someone tells you that they are peeing at night every 20 minutes, jumping straight into, oh my gosh, that sounds so terrible, is probably not going to be a great way to build rapport with our patients because it can be alarming, distracting from what they're telling you. And we want to just listen without judgment, listen without as much of a reaction. Now, if somebody's sharing something really emotionally painful, I think it's okay to validate, say, you know, that sounds like it was really hard for you. But the difference between those two statements is that you're trying to reflect their emotions and not put your emotions onto them. So that would be my other tip is to monitor your responses from a facial expression perspective, the noises that you make when you're responding, and the things that you're saying to them so that you're not putting your crap on them. Yes. And the way I see this the most, Sammy, is, oh, (laughs) (laughs) or, ah. And, you know, an awe when they tell you about their new puppy or something cute with their kids, so natural and adorable. But a lot of times I hear this like, oh, 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 or good, great, good, great. You know, good, great. We're trying to say that we agree and we're celebrating whatever they're saying. It's not really meaningful. The evidence on feedback is very specific. If you're trying to give positive feedback to someone, you need to be specific. Things like, great, nice job, good work, don't mean anything. They completely slide off of us. So if your goal is to encourage them in what they're doing, it's still more helpful to say, I'm so proud of you for sticking with your home exercise program. Now, that's probably something we'll say on a different day, not today, (laughs) not on the subjective. So for subjective, it might be like, I see that you've been taking a lot of time to learn about pelvic health already, and you've got some great information. Can I build off of that? 
Now that is very affirming to me instead of hearing, great. Okay. Can I tell you more about the pelvic floor? Yep. So it's usually those small little things. And I'll say, I was such a culprit of this, Sammy. When I started practicing, I used to say beautiful all the time. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. But I was like, oh, beautiful. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Good. All those types of things. I think because I was trying to affirm people and connect with them. And was anybody mad at me for it? No. Did it really do anything? No. And I would have been getting a better rapport, I believe, by listening to them and then giving them a more robust, specific piece of feedback. I'm curious when you were doing that, if you can remember back to those times where you felt the impulse to say beautiful or great, good, okay. Did you feel like that took away from your ability to listen to the patient? because you're feeling like you need to respond to them or give them some response that they were looking for? Definitely. And it wasn't even necessarily about them. It was like they were checking things off of my list that I thought were important. Mm. So it wasn't really listening to them deeply and hearing, okay, this person has been researching a lot, which means maybe that's the kind of approach I need to have with them is be research forward or, you know, they're very independent or even listening for readiness to change. I was not listening for those things. I was more so listening for, do they have this type of pelvic floor dysfunction? And if yes, oh no, let me educate. And if they don't, okay, great. It's not an issue. And so it was much more of a checklist. And now I think my emotional intelligence has developed so that I'm listening almost a layer beyond what they say. And so I'm hearing them, but I'm also seeing, oh, that sounds like fear avoidance or, oh, that tells me that they're magnifying their pain and storing those away into Mm -hmm. different buckets of my, I'm going to mix metaphors, different parts of my parking lot. So I can come back to the parking lot later and say, okay, it's probably time for us to address this. Yeah. I I totally agree on that. I definitely notice when I feel like I have to give a certain response, it's often because I am uncomfortable or feeling like the rapport isn't there. And so I want the patient to feel like I'm listening and I want them to feel like I'm being supportive of them. But when I find myself wanting a patient to feel a certain thing towards me, instantly that's not a present interaction. I'm not listening to them anymore. I'm trying to make them feel a certain way about me. It's a very different focus. So I I find that when I am saying a lot of those statements like beautiful or great, that's where I'm coming from. And so if I can take a step back and just say, your job is to listen and to synthesize the information and to understand this patient. I can just sit there and say nothing. (laughs) Or I can also just say things like, okay, you know, or, or just something that's neutral instead of reacting and giving them this kind of like false congratulation. Yeah. Or this sense of sympathy. So that's really cool. I'm hearing that we have two different ways that we can respond. And for listeners, you might notice your own tendency to throw in these additional words. So pay attention. This is where having someone in the room with you can be so helpful But you could also record yourself as you're explaining something you're uncomfortable with and see what happens. 
Mm, good, good tip. I like that. <laughs> Uncomfortable tip, but good. Yes. So the next part of our discussion probably heads into understanding their experience. Those are things that are just fundamental for rapport. How do we learn their story and how do we tease out what will truly help us form a great plan of care with them? I think the first thing that is so helpful for understanding their experience is, first of all, same thing that we would do to build rapport, which is let them talk without interruption. The other thing that I think is so important to understand a patient's experience is to avoid leading questions, which I know Mm -hmm. I'm extremely guilty of. I'm going to give an example. If somebody comes in and I see on their referral that they're coming in for shoulder pain. In the past, I used to ask things like, so Susan, I see that you're coming in for shoulder pain. Can you tell me a little bit more about when this started? Already, I've closed the conversation down because we've limited it now to just the shoulder pain and when it started. So they could answer with, yeah, I have shoulder pain. It started a month ago. That is so different than asking somebody, so Susan, what brings you in today? And they may start off with a story of, well, a month ago I fell and I landed on my, my shoulder and I am also having a lot of wrist and elbow pain. And there's, there's a lot more richness to a story like that because they can talk about their experience and all of the symptoms that they have, which might lead you to think, oh, well, maybe it's actually a cervical spine issue. I'm noticing they have symptoms all the way down their arm. Maybe it's not just the shoulder. But if we get so laser focused on that shoulder with that first kind of leading question, we've missed everything else. So my other tip for the subjective is to try to avoid leading questions. Keep it really broad at the beginning. And then get more specific, which is kind of a funnel approach. I also love what brings you in because they might tell you what they want from PT. Mm -hmm. I'm here because I want exercises. I'm here because I can't stand this pain anymore they'll fill in the blank with whatever is important to them. And that's the way you need to look at it is not just checking things off of your checkbox, but looking at it and saying, what are they telling me? How could we work together with what I know about them? How could I match them? Or are we not a good match? Opposite ends of the spectrum, but what they might tell you that they want in few instances will actually not be what you're able to provide. And so you have that option. For the majority of people, they'll probably be in the right spot and you'll want to provide even more than what they came in for, especially in pelvic health, right? (laughs) Yep. But listen to what they're saying and listen for that second layer. This is where I actually think mindfulness is important because mindfulness allows us to see what's happening without judgment. And then to pull everything together afterwards. And if we can be really mindful listeners, then we are going to understand people so much more. So listen to them, go into the funnel and funnel down the specifics of what you need after you've let them talk. And that leads us into understanding their beliefs about pain, which is such a juicy one for me. This was really, really tough. And I've been working on it so much, probably the last couple of years. And by studying avoidance, studying catastrophizing, and listening to people, I'm starting to see patterns of things that stand out to me. So my tip for understanding their beliefs is to be mindful of what they're saying. 
when they say to you, I don't lift overhead, okay, they're avoiding it. So now that I know they're avoiding it, my next question might be, how come you don't lift overhead? Is it the pain? Is it that they have absolutely no necessity to do that because of their living environment? So get curious and ask those follow-up questions, which leads us into making no assumptions. Because when we assume we know why they're not lifting overhead, we probably want to do something about it or we dismiss it as unimportant. So I would say be really curious about what your patients are saying to you. When we have that approach of checking those boxes of what are their ags, what are their eases, what's the irritability, the severity, we miss a lot of that nuance. If a patient tells you it hurts to lift overhead, I think appropriate follow-up questions should be, like you say, first of all, what is it that stops you from lifting overhead? How much weight do you lift overhead before you have pain? In what situations, with what objects do you notice it at the end of the day versus at the beginning of the day? Getting into more than just, oh, okay, so you have pain with lifting overhead. If we get curious and we stop assuming that we know why their pain is happening, we can get a much greater richness of information that allows us to also be more efficient in the treatments that we choose. Right. Because when you hear their avoidance, then you know that you need to work on desensitization. When you hear they're catastrophizing, you're going to start to listen to which of those three aspects of catastrophizing it is. When you hear their anxiety over and over again, you're going to think, okay, we need to probably bring in a mental health provider or some other way for them to address this. So understanding their beliefs is really listening to them with so much presence that you can get curious about why something is happening for them. I would say the foundation for that starts with a great pain science course or learning about pain science, pain psychology specifically, not just pain science, but actually learning about pain psychology on your own. There is a helpful book that we'll link in our show notes. It's a psychology text, but it has great information about pain. And then also looking up pain psychology on your own and reading articles. That's primarily how I got this info, Sammy, was just getting curious about that, starting to read books, looking up articles, and then I was able to hear it in what people were telling me. And there is one question I've started asking everyone to understand their psychosocial factors a little bit better, which is, do you have any concerns or worries about this condition? Or usually I say whatever it is. So do you have any worries or concerns about your knee pain or anything that's really on your mind about it? That opens up the door for them to share with me this more cognitive or emotional component of their pain. And it's been an awesome question because people either confirm what we've already talked about or they're like, no, honestly, I believe my pain is going to get better and I'm just ready to do something about it. And that tells me a lot too. tells Mm -hmm. me what they believe about their prognosis. It tells me they're ready to jump in. So I don't need to spend a ton of time educating that person. They're already in the action phase, so I need to give them something to do. 
if they're really concerned that this pain actually means something is really wrong with them, okay, so my education probably needs to center around understanding the diagnosis or how I'm going to reach the diagnosis. And this helps me be more efficient and connect better with them too. So that's my newest question. I would totally add that in. I love that. That's meeting with the patient where they're at. When it comes to understanding a patient's beliefs about their chief complaint, we really want to know what they think caused it, what they think will make it better, what their prognosis is, and what their past experience with this type of condition has been. So those are four things that you may need to ask about or they may already tell you. Oftentimes, they'll be saying things about those some of those four questions along the way. So your attentive listening will be really helpful here. They might say things like, my posture has been so bad. I, you know, I think it's been like working these long hours that's been kind of contributing to my neck pain. So you don't need to ask about that again. You might go on to the other three. But keep those in mind and ask them as is. I give a little bit of context to say for the first question, you know, everyone always has kind of a gut feeling of what might be causing their symptoms. What do you think it is? And what do you think will make it better? What do you think will make it better is an interesting one because people usually say that. So often I'm not asking that directly, but I'm listening to them. You know, if they keep talking about posture, 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 that means that they believe they need to change their posture. If they're talking about, I need to lose weight, I need to exercise. So oftentimes I get that one indirectly and I'm usually not asking it outright. So of those four types of questions, you may choose to ask them. You may gather that information. I don't necessarily believe you have to ask all of them on day one. I wouldn't quite make it a checklist, but I would want to understand those enough to have a picture of this person. So ask what you need to. Get curious about their past experiences, especially Oftentimes, they have a family member who has had similar pain, especially if they're very fearful, if they're catastrophizing, or if they're dealing with persistent pain, then usually there's something they believe about their prognosis or their past experiences, learning about this pain that are really influencing their current beliefs. Yeah, it sounds like that more so than specific questions, we're just active listening and really trying to hear what they're saying. Because if we can so easily ignore those things. The beliefs is tough because you won't get all the answers on day one, probably, just because we have time constraints and depending on the complexity of their story, you might not be able to dig into every belief. But you want to start thinking, what are their beliefs about their pain? And make sure that you're following it up in future visits and you're continually reassessing for it. Absolutely. So at the end of the subjective, I'm often asking some questions about lifestyle factors because we know a lot of lifestyle factors can be predictive for their prognosis and can be supportive or negative. 
but it's a tough thing to ask about. I find myself kind of stumbling over the question of like, what's your social support look like? Or, you know, who do you live with? It feels very awkward. So one way to reframe that question that I found helpful is to say things like, thank you so much for giving me all the information about your condition. Now I'd like to know a little bit more about you and your life, possibly what you do for fun, things like that. Do you have anything you'd like to share? And just keep it open and vague. And they might share things about their family, their hobbies, and then it makes it more of a connection with the patient too. You have things to talk about if you know that they're really into woodworking or that they love to travel. So I think it's fun from that perspective to just get to know your patients, but it also helps you to get into some of those psychosocial questions about their social support, their stress levels, things like that, without having to directly ask in an awkward way. I love what you're doing there is you're framing the context of the question rather than, again, having a checklist of, okay, now I asked all their bowel questions. So now after that, I need to talk about sleep, fluid, nutrition, you know, and just going down the list and you're setting them up for the next phase of this interview. And one line I love that seems to go over pretty well is, okay, now I understand your pain. I'd love to get to know you more because you're more than just knee pain. You know, can you tell me about where you live, who you live with, what you do for fun? And usually they laugh or they're like, okay, yeah, cool. And every now and then people are very awkward about it. (laughs) That's just them. (laughs) At the very end of the subjective, once we've gone through the the nature of their pain and their beliefs about their pain. The final thing that I like to add in as more information for myself, but also some rapport building is the question of, is there anything else you want me to know? Because I think so frequently in healthcare, we're rushed and having a patient pause and consider, okay, did I get everything checked off on my list of concerns is huge. And Not everyone will add things. I'd say maybe 30% of the time people add an additional statement or something else that they're concerned about. Most of the time they say, you know, I don't think so. I think that's everything. And I think it's just a nice little check-in for you and a a little check-in for your patient to make sure that you've gotten everything you needed out of the subjective. I love that, Sammy. It really shows them that you are there for whatever their chief concerns are and again, builds better rapport. So how do we wrap up our subjective? This used to be me pulling out the pelvic model and being like, okay, so now I'm going to tell you about the pelvic floor and I'm going to get consent for your internal exam and keep it moving. And I've evolved to now say, thank you for answering all my questions. Now I'd love to reverse the interview. What questions do you have for me? And this is such a helpful tip for efficiency because usually this was at the very end of my visit because I'd go subjective, objective, and then it was time for education at the end. And this has sent me into panic so many times when people have five questions to ask you at the end and you're like, oh my God, not only did I not have time to answer your questions, but if I had answered your questions, probably our exam or our working together would have been different. Mm. So I've learned to ask this sooner. And I'll be honest, there's been a few times where it does take me like 30 minutes of talking to them to really answer the questions because they have so many. So maybe we defer the exam until the next time. 
I personally think of that as a very successful session because they got what they needed and we've built such strong connection for what we're going to do in the future. But for anyone who's concerned that that's what's going to happen, I will say that 85% of the time people have like two or three quick questions that this probably takes maybe five minutes or maybe eight minutes out of my entire session. And I still bill for it. This is still my therapeutic activity, or this is my exercise code if I'm answering exercise questions. And the unexpected benefit of asking this has been that it really segues into the objective for me. So a lot of times they'll be like, nope, I don't have any questions. And then I say, great. So the next step for us would be to do an exam, and then we can talk about treatment options specific to you. Boom, there it is. Or they might say, yeah, I mean, what do I do next? Like, what type of exercises do you think would help me out? And that's a perfect segue because I say, great question. You know, in order to answer that, I would like to get a little bit more information by watching you move or doing some type of pelvic exam. And here's the options for that. And it's a very natural segue because they told you they want to get to the treatment. And now you're explaining why your exam will help you get into the treatment without having to waste a lot of time, you know, pretending that they do know or that they don't know. You cut right to the point. You're giving them what they want, which helps them feel really good. By the end of the session, when I've been doing this, they're happy. And we get to the end and I'm like, any other questions or concerns? And they're like, nope, I'm good. Let's set up my follow-up and I'll be back in. And that is so affirming for me also, because I'm like, okay, we're done. You know, it's over. So This, I think, is my golden question lately, Sammy. Love it. I've been doing that, too, and I would totally agree that most of the time people either don't have questions or they have the same question that you described, and you can just segue right in. So it's beautiful. Beautiful? Well, (laughs) I just said beautiful. (laughs) You Um, know what? (laughs) It's okay. Yeah, we just teased ourselves for it, but you know what? We're human. We still say it. Maybe it's okay to say beautiful if it's not like every other word you say to someone as it was for me very early in my career. So with that great display of humanity and compassion for ourselves, we are going to wrap up our subjective episode. These tips have been super helpful for me personally in my practice and have really changed the dynamics of that very first session. We're excited next time to jump into the objective exam. So this is the next part of that same first visit evaluation and how we might streamline those objective measures to continue to get patient buy-in and to increase your efficiency and get to the root of a patient's problem in a patient-centered way. So tune in next time and we'll talk more about the objective. Stay conscious, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.